Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde, recording from STAT's New York City Bureau. I'm Adam Feuerstein, coming to you from STAT's worldwide headquarters in Boston. And I'm Rebecca Robbins, recording from STAT's San Francisco outpost. It's Thursday, September 27th, and here's what's on the docket this week. The biopharma company Amarin just wowed the heart medicine world with spectacular top-line results from a clinical trial testing its prescription fish oil pills. We'll talk about what's next for the drug. Ketamine, best known as a sedative and a club drug, is being reinvented as a treatment for depression. Stat reporter Megan Thielking joins us to talk about how it's being promoted off-label and why drug companies are interested too. So not everyone loves venture capitalists. Ethan Perlstein, CEO of a biotech startup called Perlara, joins us to talk about the flaws he sees in the venture funding model for life sciences companies. And last up, we'll bring you another lightning round full of takes that will stay hot even as summer fades away. We'll talk about identical migraine drugs, impoverished pharma CEOs, and why hedge fund managers can't get enough of drug stocks. But first, a word about Stat Plus. Enjoying the read out loud? You can get more exclusive coverage from Adam, Rebecca, Damien, and others at Stat with a Stat Plus subscription. Stat Plus delivers daily, market-moving coverage of biotech, pharma, and the life sciences. By subscribing today, you'll get access to exclusive stories from our award-winning team every day. And as a special thanks to you, our podcast listener, subscribe to Stat Plus now and enjoy 10% off your first year by using the code POD, P-O-D. We hope you enjoy Stat Plus, and thanks for being a Read Out Loud listener. It was a pretty wild week for the drug company Amarin. On Monday, Amarin surprised a lot of people in the medical field with show-stopping results from a large clinical trial involving its prescription-grade formulation of fish oil. So in this study, Amarin's product, which is called Vasipa, reduced the risk of cardiovascular events, which are bad things like heart attacks and strokes, by an astounding 25%. Yeah, Vasipa was approved by the FDA in 2012 to treat people with high levels of triglycerides. That's a type of fat found in blood. But the product's commercial output has been modest to date because there was really no scientific proof linking triglyceride lowering to improved cardiovascular outcomes. But that changed with Monday's Vasipa study results. What was a niche commercial product may soon become a gold standard add-on therapy to statins, which are prescribed to millions of Americans. Billions of dollars in sales are potentially up for grabs for Amarin. So Adam, you've been following Amarin for years, and you wrote a couple stories on Monday about the Vasipa trial and what's next for the company. So I'm curious, you know, we said at the top that these results were surprising, but every day millions of Americans already swallow fish oil capsules containing heart-healthy omega-3 fatty acids. What's different about Vasipa? Yeah, that's what's kind of interesting about the story is that Millions of Americans take fish oil pills, but there's never been a study that tied the use of fish oil or omega-3 fatty acids to long-term heart benefits. Lots of clinical trials had been run, and all of them had failed. And that changed Monday with Amarin's Vasipa, which is, admittedly, it's not like the fish oil capsules that you buy at your local drugstore. It's a prescription product. It's highly purified, and they use it at a higher dose. So, That seems to have done the trick here and been able to demonstrate the fact that if you take Vasipa, you can have a lower risk of heart attacks and strokes. So back to Monday's results. I feel like it's fair to say the conventional wisdom in biotech was that this trial was going to be a disappointment. So what was the reaction when it did not disappoint? 
Yeah, I mean, for all those reasons that we said that, you know, all these previous studies had failed, you know, Ameren stock is kind of trading around $3. And I think there was a lot of skepticism both in the medical community and in the investor world that this trial was going to work. So Monday rolls around and the trial works. Uh, the company announces these results. And, you know, as you would expect, Ameren's stock price soared. Uh, you know, again, a stock that was trading at $3. Today, as we record this podcast, it's trading around $14 per share. And so the company has added several billion dollars in market cap. So back to the results themselves. As we mentioned before, uh, the drug showed a 25% reduction in the risk of cardiovascular events. Can you give us some context? Like, why is that so impressive? Yeah, that's a big number in the cardiovascular world. Let me put that into perspective. So for instance, the statin class of cholesterol-lowering drugs, when those were brand name drugs before they went generic, as a class, they did something like $30 billion in, in sales in total. And that's because they also reduced the risk of heart attack and strokes by around 30%. Since then, other sort of classes of cardiovascular drugs have, have really kind of not done as well. You can think of like the PCSK9, cholesterol-lowering drugs. They have a relative risk reduction of around 15%. So this 25% number that Amarin put down this week with the SEPA is really significant. Let's talk about another interesting angle to this story, which is the price of Vasipa. Amarin has been selling Vasipa for about $2,500 a year, and it's widely reimbursed by insurance companies. And that's really cheap relative to a lot of drugs on the market. PCSK9s, for instance, cost $14,000 a year. So will Amarin now try to raise the product's price? Yeah, you know, that question was asked to the company on a conference call on Monday, and the CEO sort of demurred. He extolled the virtue of having a low price, and and it's the reason why they've been able to get it widely reimbursed. He didn't say that they wouldn't raise the price, but they also kind of pointed to the fact that Vasipa is relatively inexpensive, allows them to kind of get a broader reach. So I think what they're trying to do here is kind of a volume play. I think that they want to keep the product relatively cheap so that they can just reach those tens of millions of Americans who might potentially benefit from it. So it's important to note that talking about these data, we're referring to lines in a press release, not a you know publication in a major medical journal. So all of this needs to be more fully vetted, right? Yeah, that's right. So what we have right now are just sort of the top line data from Amarin that were distributed through a press release. We are going to see a lot more data on Facepa and its impact for patients on November 10th. That's when the company will be presenting the data at a major cardiovascular medical conference. And like I said, the details are important. So we'll know a lot more after we see those. If you're a regular listener to this podcast, you'll recall that we've had a few venture capital investors join us as guests. Our guest this week offers a different take. VCs are bad. Joining us today is Ethan Perlstein, a man of many opinions on Twitter. He's the founder and CEO of a South San Francisco-based biotech startup called Perlora. The company is focused on discovering drugs to treat rare diseases. Ethan's company is backed by the startup accelerator Y Combinator and a handful of seed stage investors. And like many startup entrepreneurs, Ethan has encountered some frustration in pitching VCs. He said that he pitched 75 venture funds in 2017, and about a quarter of them never engaged again following that first meeting. Ethan, thanks for joining us. That's a pleasure to be here. So Ethan, you've described certain VCs as cartels. Can you elaborate on what you mean by that? Yeah, sure. I think I'm obviously throwing a bit of shade on the uh, Boston and, and 
potentially Bay Area life science investors, you know, sort of top tier VC funds in particular. But I guess the, the basic idea is that you have a limited number of funds that are you know, gatekeepers and giving access to capital to a select sort of few anointed uh, groups of folks who are allowed to be management teams and basically you know, profiling out everybody else that doesn't pattern match that type. And so from the outside perspective, it feels a lot um, like a cartel. Ethan, you take issue with the notion that biotech VCs fund startups. So if they're not funding startups, what is it that they're funding? Well, I think they're funding spin-outs, and I think these are these are two separate things. Uh, startups, I think, implies bootstrapping, where you have the founder uh, is the CEO, or the, the, so the so the co-founding team are the the executives. There's no largesse there; they have to go hustle and beat the pavement and find customers or get, in this case, scientific traction. A spin-out is a much more tidy, uh, neat affair, and and done sort of much more in a professionalized way, where you, you have a, a very clear sort of flow of, of IP coming from a few key labs at, at universities, and, and that technology is, is essentially funneled into a few of these, uh, you know, as I said, the VC cartels, the life science cartels, that are allowed to get premium first access to all this great science. And then the founders of these companies are the big name professors that you know, put their name onto the website and put their sort of name onto the scientific advisory board. And I'm sure they participate, of course. But the, the keys are given to a professional management team. And that's usually, you know, former SVPs or executives uh, or, or industry managers from Biopharma who are, you know, given the chance to be first-time CEOs at uh, 45 or 50. And that, to me, is, is not the same as a startup where you actually have to really build things from the bottom up. And so that dynamic you just described is very common in biotech in terms of how management teams are, are put together after the fact and et cetera. But it's very different from what we see in the tech industry, where it's pretty common to see a young founder get lavish with VC money from the start and then lead the company from then on. That's often framed as a good thing in biotech, because at least, you know, when I hear from VCs, there's the idea that older founders, those SVPs you referred to, have the right kind of experience to get through drug development because it's, it's hard. But I feel like you've, you've disagreed with that characterization in the past. I do. I'm not naive in thinking that, well, some 20-year-old Teal fellow is going to, you know, solve all the problems of the world and we need to focus exclusively on those types of people. But you obviously have to sort of adjust and control for for the different fields. In computer science, you could be coding and whatnot from a very, very young age. You're not going to be doing certain experiments in the lab, you know, when you're, you know, six years old. And so, yes, you have to adjust for the fact that I I, I expect people to actually go through PhDs or at least get some amount of real-world lab experience. So young, in my definition, means under 40, you know, to tech, you know, young would mean under 30. But I think the, the, the point's really still the same, which is that if you just simply value experience because that's what's sort of given you the return before, well, let's take the bigger perspective. You know, the return hasn't been so great in absolute uh, terms because well, we still again, are in a regime where it's just more expensive and more time consuming to bring drugs to market. Nine out of 10 things fail going into the clinic. And that's after all the hurdles I have to jump through to get there. So I'm, I'm, I'm suggesting maybe to mix up the management pool criteria just a bit because the, the idea that everything is just a wonderful swimming success as it is now, uh, you know, I, I, I would challenge that. Ethan, as we record this podcast, we're just a short drive from Sand Hill Road. That's the so-called main street of venture capital here in Silicon Valley that's home to a huge cluster of VC firms. Now, the folks on Sand Hill Road are increasingly excited about biology, but do they actually have a grasp on the science? 
Uh, I think some of them do. I mean, you just look at who they hire as partners. I would say, yeah, the two metrics are how many of their partners have MDs and PhDs and actually have done this before. And in fact, I think that's the biggest criteria. And, and so you've got a couple of years now where lots of people talk about all this excitement for tech and bio and just look, are they hiring the people who can make these and evaluate these deals? And then secondarily, are they leading these rounds? Are they actually putting the real skin in the game and their reputations on the line? So you often hear VCs talk about putting patients at the center of what they do. But of course, quite often, those early investors have already cashed out by the time a company in question has sometimes even reached clinical trials, but usually reached FDA approval. Do you feel like those claims are sometimes disingenuous? I'll I'll just put put it this way. Who is making those early seed bets uh, when it comes to, let's say, especially in the case of rare diseases, the ultra rare diseases, where it's really just the patient communities and, and that's it. And then I ask myself, who's actually cutting those checks to do that early, most, that riskiest, earliest work? And it's not the VCs. Uh, you know, the check size that, that you have to cut for that are too small. The markets are considered too small, 36 patients in the world. That's too small. So I, I, I say, if you're really putting patients first, you're really putting patients at the center, then you're taking the same kind of risks and making the same bets that they are. Um, and if you're not, then you're sort of using that as a very convenient marketing slogan. You know, put your money where your mouth is. Put the money in their hands, the patient's hands. That's really the test for me. Ethan, you've also said that you think VCs and pharma are overlooking the rise and the importance of patient advocacy groups. I'm curious about that because I feel like from my vantage point, there's a ton of collaboration. But you see things differently? Well, actually, no, I do believe there is there's collaboration. Um, I, I just think it, it may be a certain number of rare disease groups that have really embraced venture philanthropy and that are sort of the cutting edge of that. But again, I would say as a whole, I think you see there are some cutting edge, you know, small biotech firms like us that, that, are, that are partnering from the, the bottom up. But, you know, I don't see too many uh, VCs really embracing this, the ultra rare um, opportunity, because I think in the end, they simply say, well, how could you make money off of such a tiny patient population? You'd have to charge so much per patient, and there's already blowback. And and so I think that that's, that's where I, I make that statement. Ethan, we appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks, Rebecca. Thanks, Damien. It was a pleasure. Next up, we're going to talk about ketamine. Ketamine is an analgesic with many uses. Vets give it to pets. Surgeons give it to patients before they go under the knife. Emergency room doctors give it to children. Hard partiers even take it, illegally we should add, to get an out-of-body experience at raves and clubs. And these days, clinics across the country are promoting ketamine too as an off-label treatment for depression and other conditions. So to investigate the ketamine boom, our stat colleague Megan Thielking interviewed ketamine clinic owners, psychiatrists, and patients. She also reviewed online staff pages and protocols for dozens of ketamine clinics to gauge how patients get selected and treated. Megan joins us today to talk about her investigation. Megan, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, Megan, tell us what you learned about how ketamine is being promoted off-label. Yeah, so like Adam said, there have been just dozens and dozens of these freestanding clinics offering ketamine that have popped up in the last couple years after some studies in the early 2000s suggested it might hold some promise for treatment-resistant depression. And I found a really wide range of things happening, but there are a couple of really troubling things I found. One is that clinics are offering it for a whole bunch of uses that aren't really supported by good published evidence. 
Another is that they're really overhyping the potential and they're promising much higher success rates than what's in the literature or they're promoting like special blends of ketamine that they say work better and last longer, but there's also not really published evidence to support those claims. And one important thing about all this is that the treatments cost a lot of money because they're not approved uh, by the FDA. They're paid for out of pocket. They're not covered by insurance. So it's hundreds of dollars in infusion. And a lot of patients get at least six infusions. So that's fueled a lot of concern that clinics are really overpromising this or they're offering it to anyone who will pay without making sure they're getting the kind of care they need. So let's talk about the science. Is this snake oil or does it have potential to be the real deal? It's definitely not snake oil. Um, one expert told me, really, it's not snake oil. It's something that needs to be really reined in. I mean, there's a lot of promising data that have been published on treatment-resistant depression and people with suicidal thoughts. And anecdotally, a lot of patients say it helps them. A lot of patients told me it really quickly relieved some of the most serious symptoms of depression that they've had. But I think what really came through from my reporting was that the way ketamine is being used has just changed so quickly and it's jumped pretty far ahead of the science. So it's not just clinics and patients that are excited about the potential of ketamine. Drug companies are also testing variants of ketamine, too. Um, Megan, walk us through which drug makers are working on what. Yeah, so there's a couple drug companies that are working on fast-acting antidepressants, which is essentially what ketamine is being used as off-label right now um, because it works within hours for some of the patients that it works for. Uh, Janssen is working on a nasal spray of S-ketamine, which is derived from ketamine, and they're testing that in patients with really severe depression and in people with suicidal thoughts. Uh, Allergan is also working on a fast-acting antidepressant that's called Rapastinel. And then there's just a bunch of other depression treatments that are in the pipeline right now. Um, And even if those aren't fast-acting depression treatments, I think if they were to be approved, they might offer new options to people who haven't responded to existing drugs and are currently testing out the idea of ketamine. So that all sounds promising, but I take it there are limitations to ketamine's potential too? Right, exactly. And I think a big one is that it just doesn't work for everyone. Uh, Some clinics say that they have really high success rates, like as high as 90%. But what's in the published literature suggests that the success rate only goes as high as 70%. uh, And not all of those people end up seeing those effects last for a long time. Another big limitation is that there isn't a really good picture of like the long-term effects or the potential risks down the road after using ketamine at the frequency it's being given to people right now or the doses it's being given to people right now. There's not good long-term data on that either. So if these drug companies do eventually succeed in developing ketamine the old-fashioned way and getting approval as an antidepressant, do you think doctors, patients, and, and payers will be receptive to you know what has long been known as an illicit drug kind of crossing the threshold into therapeutics? I do think that they will be receptive just purely because there's such a huge unmet need right now. And doctors know that. Patients know that. Doctors are you know, also in a tough spot because they're not able to offer some of their patients any real kind of relief. And I think having more people with serious mental health conditions on a treatment that works for them would be a good thing for insurers as well. I would think it would save money. And having that insurance coverage would also be a big benefit to patients because Patients who haven't responded to existing drugs right now and who are trying ketamine, like I said, are paying so much money out of pocket. So if you want to read more about Megan's story, it's available on STAT. And thanks for joining us, Megan. Thanks for having me.
It's time for another lightning round. First up, we're going to talk about migraine drugs. So, Damien, tell us about what's expected to be the newest addition to the drugs that are on the market. Yes, so any minute today, in fact, it may have already happened by the time you listen to this, Eli Lilly is expected to win FDA approval for an injected treatment that prevents migraines. And what's interesting about this is if that happens or has happened, it will be the third such treatment that works pretty much the exact same way and works pretty much exactly as well to hit the market. The first one was from Amgen and Novartis, and then the second came just a couple weeks ago from Teva. So is it unusual to have three sort of basically identical drugs hitting the market at the same time? What impact is that going to have on kind of market share, pricing, and which one of these drugs that the doctors choose to use? Right. It is unusual. Usually these things are spaced out or there's a longer run of exclusivity for the first mover, which in this case was Amgen. And that does have some pretty interesting ramifications. Teva priced its migraine therapy at the exact same price as Amgen, and Lilly is expected to do basically the same thing. And so now the companies are in kind of an interesting race where they're trying to build brand loyalty by giving the drug away for free so that once the process of negotiating with payers and insurers is complete, they might have have kind of a core contingency of market share so they can eventually win out. And Damien, when we were talking about this earlier, you drew an analogy to McDonald's. Right. Yeah. It's kind of like the ball pit, which, you know, you can make ideally happy childhood memories at McDonald's and then you will bring your own children there to buy their questionably salubrious food. These drugs are probably more beneficial than a Big Mac, but it'll be interesting to see, you know, whose kind of brand loyalty play wins out in the course of, let's say, the next three years. Next up, let's talk about Wall Street hedge funds and their new favorite thing. That's right. The Wall Street Journal reported this week that hedge funds have built up their largest position in shares of healthcare stocks. So that's drug companies, insurers, anything in the healthcare world uh, in the past five years. And what was interesting about the story is that according to most of the sources, this embrace of healthcare was part of a, a pullback or a divestiture from tech, which has been having kind of a rough go of things between congressional inquiry and concerns about election tampering. And what's interesting about that is we're only about three years removed from when we were reading the inverse of this story, because everybody was pulling out of healthcare in 2015 around concern about drug prices and Hillary Clinton hating valiant pharmaceuticals and all other headlines like that. Yeah. And I think this journal story also quantifies a phenomenon that we've talked about on the podcast and written about in that the fact is that money is just flooding into biotech, whether it's kind of fund flows kind of moving into healthcare investment funds or the number of IPOs out there or financings. We're seeing a lot of this money come into biotech, come into healthcare. And, and again, this story sort of points that out. So Gilead is starting a company to compete with Gilead in the interest of boosting profits for Gilead. Rebecca, why is this happening? That's right. So the drug maker, of course, sells best-selling hepatitis C treatments like Harvoni and Sovaldi, um, but those sales are falling. Uh, they are no longer the reliable revenue driver that they used to be. And so as a way to try to retain some of that market share, the company is going to be selling essentially generic versions of these drugs. It's a little bit unusual, and I think people saw this story and, they, and their eyebrows sort of went up that you know Gilead is basically selling generic versions of their own drugs, and that's not something you necessarily see. So there was a lot of questions this week about whether this is kind of a one-off phenomenon or we might see other drug companies, when they're sort of feeling the, the pressure of pricing, uh, resort to the same thing. 
Well, and we did see it before with Mylan. When Mylan was pressured to lower the price of EpiPen, they ended up introducing a branded generic, and their reasoning was the same reasoning as Gilead's, which is that the sort of horrifying Rube Goldberg machine by which drugs get paid for make it really hard to just straight up lower the price of something. And so the workaround they found was the same one that Gilead is embracing. So maybe we'll continue to see this. And finally, let's talk about AstraZeneca CEO Pascal Sorio and some complaints he's made about his compensation. So Sorio told the Sunday Times, that's a newspaper in the UK, that he is the lowest paid CEO in the whole industry. And the thing that made that sound a little bit tone deaf is the fact that he made about $13.4 million last year. And the quotes are pretty phenomenal, actually. After he gripes about his pay, he says, there's other things in life than money. And then I'm not going to complain, but... And then, of course, a complaint ensues from there. That's like when you say, with all due respect, but then you slam somebody. So Sorio has said some weird stuff like this before. You dug up a few clips, Damien. Yeah, I've always remembered he first told, I think, a Swedish publication about his life growing up in the banlieue outside Paris, where he had a fistfight once a week. I don't know if that's embellished. It, It could be entirely true. And then he brought that up again to the Financial Times about a year or so ago, and he brought it up in the context of when AstraZeneca fended off a hostile takeover attempt from Pfizer, which I guess he sees a linkage between that and scrapping on the schoolyard in France. I do admire deviation from the PR script, though. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, the narrative now around Pascal Sorio is that he's underpaid and he could beat you up. And that does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Hyacinth Epinato, who all by herself has produced this week's episode. Matthew Orr is our senior producer, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And we would love to hear from you. Tell us what you like, what you don't like, what we should talk about in the future. You can send us an email to readoutloud at statnews.com. We read them and we appreciate them. So thank you. See you next week. 